As human beings, we're able to have a concept of knowing what we don't know. But how do you get more accuracy on that? And then, how do you actually know more? On this episode, a cognitive scientist on what works in practice. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 437. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. As leaders, and really as any position in any organization, we always want to be learning more and discovering more. And of course, there's a lot of things we don't know. But how do you know what you don't know? Today's guest is going to help us to really dive in on some of the psychology and science behind how our brains work. But even more importantly than that, what are some of the practical ways that we can really become more knowledgeable and to utilize the relationships and the frameworks around us in order to do that well. I am thrilled to welcome to the show today, Art Markman. Art is the Annabelle Erian Worsham Centennial Professor of Psychology and Marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the founding director of the program in Human Dimensions of Organizations, which brings the humanities and the social behavioral sciences to people in business. Today, he's also executive director of the IC Squared Institute. He is the executive director also of the Journal of Cognitive Science and writes for many sites, including Psychology Today and Fast Company. He also consults for companies interested in using cognitive science in their businesses. Along with Bob Duke, Art hosts the radio show Two Guys on Your Head for KUT Radio in Austin, also available as a podcast. He's the author of many books, most recently, Bring Your Brain to Work, Using Cognitive Science to Get a Job do it well, and advance your career. Art, so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, thanks, Dave. It's really great to be talking with you. Boy, we could talk for hours on this book and how bringing your brain to work is such an important thing to do. But before we dive in on some of the tactics, I think there's a word that we should define a bit, and maybe some folks have heard it before, but this word metacognition, what does that mean and how does that play a role in our learning in the workplace? Yeah, so the term metacognition is really the idea of thinking about thinking. And one of the things that humans are quite good at, in addition to being good reasoners, is that we're actually able to reflect on the way that we think about things. And so one of the things that that enables us to do is to say things like, wow, I don't know that at all. So if somebody says to you, do you know the address of the White House? You might know it or you might not, but, but, but your ability to answer the question, do you know it, is a metacognition. It's, it's an ability to say, I know this, I don't know it. I feel confident. I feel not so confident. And that ability is, is an extraordinarily important part of determining whether we choose to learn something or not. Although, I, as we'll see over the course of the conversation, we are, are, that metacognitive ability is sometimes flawed in important ways. Yeah, indeed. And one of the flaws that I'm I'm guessing might come up here is something that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I just came across this in the last few months and also in your work. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how that flaw manifests itself. 
Yeah. So in in every situation in life, and let's let's think about business for a second. So so think about for all your listeners, think about what it is that your company does. And and now think about a new employee that you bring on. How many times have you had a new employee who comes in and within three weeks they're looking around thinking, these people don't know what they're doing. I could run this place. Mm. And you think to yourself, they have no earthly idea what it takes to run a business like this. And that's a reflection of this Dunning-Kruger effect, which is in general, people tend to be overconfident in their abilities to do things. But the people who are most overconfident are generally speaking, the ones who are the worst performers, and particularly the ones who know the least about that area. And that's because the less you know, the less that you even understand what expert performance would require. And so you think to yourself, how hard could it be? And of course, if we put somebody in charge of something who doesn't really know what they're doing, that can have disastrous consequences. So the if I know a little bit about something that, and then I think I know a lot about it because I know a little bit about it, that's where this comes into trouble for us, right? Of, of just casual exposure and not really the depth of experience that someone may recognize who's been doing the work for 5, 10, 15 years. Exactly. And, and partly because often when we learn about something for the first time, we learn about it abstractly. We learn some general principle. And so then we think, well, that, that seems pretty simple. But of course, as the old saying goes, the devil's in the details. And so one of the things that, that, that's required to, to be successful is actually to dig down and do all of the specific steps and make all of the specific plans and handle all of the specific obstacles that are going to come up in your way when you are trying to do anything difficult. And the less you know, the less you even appreciate the degree of complexity that is required to get something done. And so your own metacognitive ability improves as you become more expert because you, you have a better idea of what to look for. You recognize the danger signs for things that are going to go wrong earlier. And you have strategies that, that you can bring to bear to help you to fix things as, as problems arise. And so to me, that's really the centerpiece of the danger underlying this, this Dunning-Kruger effect. And I'm guessing that this falls in the category of things that it's easier to recognize in others and a lot harder to recognize when we are falling into that trap ourselves. And I'm curious, are there ways that we can approach new situations that we don't have the experience, other than spending <laughs> five or 10 years developing that experience, that we can recognize our own propensity to perhaps oversume the amount of information we know? Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think you, you know, you're raising a great point. And, and I think actually one of the places where the Dunning-Kruger effect can be most dangerous is for people who are extraordinarily competent in something else that they do. And then they go into a new situation and believe that they understand it when in fact they don't yet understand it. Actually, in the book, I talk a little bit about Ron Johnson, the, uh, the former CEO of JCPenney, who made his name as the guy who developed the concept behind the Apple store, which of course was a, an incredibly successful venture. And so he got hired by JCPenney to revitalize a flagging uh, store. 
And he came in and just said, well, I'm going to apply the same solution. It's obvious to me that what we want to do is to make JCPenney hip and cool, which was absolutely not the right thing to do and was not a success. And he did not last very long as the CEO. And I I view that as a variant of the Dunning-Kruger effect, that he had had a tremendous amount of success in one place, but didn't really understand the complexity of the new environment. And I think that one of, there are two important things that that we have to do when we step into new roles. One of which is to have some humility, meaning to make the assumption up front that we are not the most knowledgeable person in the room. And I, I didn't notice, I didn't say the smartest person in the room. I mean, the most knowledgeable person in the room. And I think that we have to recognize that there's probably a lot that we don't know. I think that's the, so, so having some humility there is important. But I think the other thing that's really important is that you have to be willing to listen to everything going on. And in particular, to listen for all of the things that might be a signal to you that you don't understand the situation as well as you think you do. And by listening a lot early on, you give yourself a sense of where are some of the biggest places where I might be missing knowledge so that you can begin to shore up some of your expertise in areas where you might be missing something. I know you do a lot of work supporting organizations, Art, who want to get better at doing this. When you see leaders or teams who do a better job at that, of not making those assumptions, of taking the time to listen, what in practice are they doing that's different than the average leader, the average team? So I think there are several things. One is that this often starts from the top, meaning that uh, one, of the, one of the things I often say about organizations is that in every organization, there's what people say they want, what people are doing, and what's being rewarded. And everyone on the team listens to those things in reverse order. So what's most important is what they see being rewarded. After that, it's, it's what they see other people doing. And the least important thing is, is what people see say they want. So a leader who says, you know, I really want everyone to be constantly learning is is not going to get that behavior if they don't see anybody admitting their own ignorance, for one thing. So one of the things leaders have to be willing to do is from the beginning to say, you know, here are some things I don't actually know enough about. And can someone help me with this or point me in the direction of it? Uh, Here at the IC Squared Institute, we actually have a book club that we engage in where Anyone who reads a book that they liked can, can tell us about it. We'll buy a couple of copies of the book and stick it out on a communal table where people can sign it out. And then the expectation is we will engage in conversations about that book over the next several weeks, just informally in the hallway. And the expectation is that everyone is going to suggest books that they've read, including me. And the idea is if I just read a book that I learned something from, it means that there must have been some stuff I didn't know about. And of course, we're, we're rewarding people for this in the sense that we're letting everybody know whose book suggestion it was. So now we're calling out those people who've gone out of their way to learn something. And I think that all of that is extraordinarily important, that leaders really have to set that tone, that they don't know everything, that they're willing to learn from others. I sometimes say that the three little words that no one's willing to say in business are, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that the more, the more willing you are to say those things, the better your organization is in the long run. So the leader really creating the culture for that. And then I love the example of the book of 
even having some artifacts within the organization that are symbols and inspire people to take action to engage in that I don't know kind of a conversation. Absolutely. And you know what it what it says is we're we're constantly trying to move forward. We cannot rest on whatever knowledge we had in the past that's going to help us. And that we're going to speak from a position of knowledge. And so if if somebody asks us a question and we don't know the answer to it, we're going to look around the room and say, does anybody else have a, a way of addressing this? And if not, we're going to get back to you on that. We're not going to just make up a response. Because one of the things about, about people who ascend to leadership roles is that often we're we're pretty good verbally. We can be glib. We can say things that sound pretty profound, but don't have any substance behind them. And I think that after a while, you can come to rely on that skill. And I think it's actually really important for people to just take that step back and, and say, you know what, I'm going to operate primarily from a position of the power of the knowledge that I have. One of the terms that you mention in your work is the expert generalist. Tell me about who the expert generalist is and how does that relate to this process of you know, not knowing and, and really engaging? So it's interesting. The ability of an organization to succeed depends on the quality of the knowledge that it has. But there are really two types of people you need to have in organizations in order to be able to succeed. And the one that we often favor are the people who are really knowledgeable in a particular area of expertise. They have a tremendous amount of depth, and and that's extraordinarily important. But in organizations, particularly as they get larger, often you have to solve problems that require people to bring knowledge from different areas of expertise together in order to be able to solve a problem. And the difficulty is if everyone lives in their, their own silo of knowledge, it is hard to figure out how to cut across those silos in order to bring together a solution that, that is richer than the individual expertise of the people in the firm. And that's where the expert generalist comes in. So there's a, there's a, there's a group of people out there who are high in a few interesting personality characteristics. They tend to be high in a characteristic called openness to experience, which means they think new things are kind of cool. They are high in another characteristic called need for cognition, which is the, the degree to which you need to think about stuff. And then they are moderate. This is interesting. They're moderate to low in another characteristic called conscientiousness, which is how much do you finish the stuff that you start? How much do you obey the rules? And, and the reason that they're somewhat moderate to low in that conscientiousness is because while they're supposed to be finishing work, they're actually reading something interesting or having conversations with people. And, and what these expert generalists do is they just soak up the knowledge around them on a variety of different topics. They're the, one who know, the ones who know what everyone in the office is doing. They're the ones who read widely on a variety of different topics. And so they don't just have a smattering of knowledge. They have some, some reasonable expertise on a wide variety of topics, and they're constantly expanding that range of knowledge. And what those expert generalists do is that they, they provide this glue between the variety of other experts you have 
helping to explain to, to, to each of those experts why the work they're doing relates to what other people are doing, and sometimes making these non-obvious connections between things. And I first stumbled on this. I was doing some work for Procter & Gamble and had the opportunity to study a group of people there that are called the Victor Mills Fellows. These are Vic Mills was the, the inventor of Pampers or shepherded the Pampers project through to, to becoming a billion-dollar brand. It oh, was also fascinating. And he, he was also involved in a number of other innovations. And, and the Vic Mills fellows at P&G are people who, who are similarly involved in lots of innovative projects. And then they're just given this opportunity to, to run across the company and find other opportunities. And all of them have this personality profile. and All of them have just this rich, varied knowledge base that enables them to cut across a large organization and bring people together to solve difficult problems. So they're really the lubricant, the catalyst that gets the different experts within the organization that might have a very specific discipline and helps the organization to make those connections and to really leverage that knowledge. That's right. Of course, the interesting thing about them is because they're moderate to low in conscientiousness, often they, they have a hard time early in their career because managers of early career people tend to like very conscientious people where you give them a project and they finish it. And so more than one of those individuals that I had a chance to talk to said something of the form, I have succeeded at this company despite the system and not because of it. Uh. And, and I think that's very true. And so, of course, the difficulty when you're a, a supervisor of someone is that it's hard to tell the difference between someone who's an expert generalist in the making and someone who's just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. So you got to pay some attention to what they're doing with their time. And to the extent that you find someone who is developing that, that really rich base of knowledge, you want to nurture them, still make them get some things done, but, but, but really nurture that ability because they will, they will, as they move on in their career, become really valuable. Huh. Fascinating. It's a boy, what a great play, thing to be watching for, especially in a larger organization. Um, and this actually leads into one of the key points you make in the book, especially around learning is the most powerful source of knowledge is the people around you. And there's one section that really leapt out to me as I was reading it. And this is a quote, you write, many organizations recognize the importance of mentorship to employee success. So they have mentorship programs in place. Soon after being hired, you may be contacted by someone who you are told is your mentor. The two of you go out for coffee or lunch and talk, and you may never really talk to that person much again. A mentorship program like this fails because it's inorganic. Tell me what you mean by inorganic and where's the failure? Yeah, so the, the problem is that an inorganic program is one in which you match people up without actually having any sense of what it is that the mentee needs and what the mentor has to offer that specific person. So often you pick people as potential mentors who have experience with the company, have been successful, they, they certainly have knowledge, but whether they have the kind of knowledge that this particular person needs is anybody's guess. And so uh, a more organic approach is, is to do two things. The first is to recognize that there probably isn't a single individual who is going to have all of the knowledge that someone needs. And so we want to encourage people not to have a mentor, but rather a mentoring team. And the other is to really empower the mentee to find that mentoring team, to reach out to people, to find folks who have what they need, 
and then to ask them to serve in that mentoring role. And one of the great ways to make that happen, again, thinking about this, this what you say, what you do, what you reward aspect, is for people in leadership roles, when someone new comes to the company, to look for something that that person knows how to do that's really interesting and take them out for a cup of coffee. So now you've got this new person in the organization and somebody senior comes in and says, you know, I notice you're really good at, who knows, you're really good at social media. I would love to, for you to show me a little bit more about how you use Instagram so effectively. Because what that says is no matter where you are and who you are, you are looking for people around you who know how to do things you don't know how to do and then picking their brain up. So you're doing an aspect of even more of like a peer mentoring, or I think uh, Jack Welch popularized the term of reverse mentoring, where mm-hmm. you're learning as much from the quote-unquote mentee as they would be learning from you and, and vice versa. Absolutely. And then I think the other thing is you really want to encourage people to find a team of people. And, and in the book, I talk a little bit about some of those people you want. So for example, you, you want to have a superstar in your lineup who is somebody who has that career path that you want, where you, you, all you want from them is, is just to sit at their feet and hear the stories of how they navigated the career to get where they are so that you can begin to soak in the path to success. But you also want to have a good coach who is often not that superstar. A good coach is somebody who's willing to not tell you what to do, but to walk you through the process of solving some of your most difficult problems so that later you hear their voice in your head when you're trying to solve a problem and are able to do the things you do more effectively. And of course, there are other people you need. You need somebody who understands the way your organization works and knows who you're supposed to talk to in order to get things done. And you need a great connector. Everyone needs at least one person in their lives who has an amazing Rolodex that they're willing to share so that when there's somebody you need to be in contact with, whether it's inside of your organization or outside, that they can provide that connection and and help you to expand your knowledge base by tapping the expertise of other people. And I think that, that as you begin to get more comfortable at just learning from a wide variety of people, you put yourself in a situation in which no matter what problem you're facing, you have this small army of people who are there to help you. Yeah, this is really, to me, so profound, what you've uncovered and just looking at the research around this, that I think a lot of times we think about traditional mentoring programs or getting a mentor, even on our own, as a single person. And you really are challenging people to look at this as a team approach. And I'm, and I'm guessing also that you may not literally go up to that person and say, hey, I want you to be my superstar mentor, <laughs> but just beginning to build a relationship where you're conscious of how you then make that connection of what you want to learn from that person. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Although I will say that it is sometimes useful to let that person know what an impact they're having on them, on, on you, because you know, one of the things that can happen to people as they move on in their career is that, is that they may forget how much they influence the career paths of other people. And I think it's valuable for people to be able to internalize, oh, I'm not only am I a good performer in a particular way, but I'm actually having this broader impact on my organization because people have come to me to tell me that I've done valuable things for them. And so I think you know, providing that feedback that, no, you know, you really have been a mentor to me 
is something that I think is just a wonderful way to provide what I think can be very important feedback to people who have helped you. I'm so glad you're mentioning this because I think that this is a point of friction for a lot of folks who are not sure how to start the relationship. And I think even the days of like going and having an informational interview with someone or just kind of picking someone's brain, I think a lot of times that doesn't doesn't work as well as it used to in starting relationships. And I and I'm sort of curious of what you've seen work art that helps people to engage in relationships like this in a way that is beneficial not only to the person who's the mentee, but also is really attractive to the person who has the experience, who has the connections, who has the superstar performance uh, that they've had. What have you seen that's worked around that? Yeah, I, you know, I think it really is about relationship development. And I think that you can make use of some of the, the, the old work on, on escalation of commitment. You know, I, I think just, just walk, walking up to somebody and saying, listen, I, you know, I, just, I love some of the work you're doing. Could, could you just recommend a book that I, I could read? you know, that, that would help me to understand some of the things you do, which is the kind of thing that anybody's going to provide for you. They're, you know, you're not asking them for an hour of their time. You just, you're just saying, listen, you know, tell me something that you've read or done that, that was a, a great experience. But then, of course, you have to go read it and learn it and think about it. And then you go back and you, you know, just say one or two sentences about how that affected them and, and ask for something else. And what happens is over time, the, the, these people who could serve as your mentors become aware that they're having this influence on what you're doing. And that, generally speaking, makes them more forthcoming, more willing to spend some time. But also, I think they begin to feel the value of that mentoring relationship because it's reinvigorating to watch someone develop in their career, particularly if you feel, as some people do in mid-career, that they're stagnating a little bit. But also, those conversations can often make the mentor see things in a somewhat different way because they're now getting your perspective on something that you've thought about deeply. And often, they will walk away from that conversation thinking, wow, I, I had not thought about that in the same way. And that makes you a more desirable person for them to want to interact with again in the future. I think that's something that a lot of us miss. I know I missed earlier in my career and probably still do. And you, you make this brilliant point in the book that the kinds of folks who often you're seeking out as superstars, as connectors, are the kinds of folks who often have benefited from those mentoring relationships earlier in their careers in a big way and recognize the importance and, and have the desire often to give back, don't they? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's amazing to me. You know, we, we often paint this picture of corporate America as being cold and impersonal. And it really is not. I mean, there are cold and impersonal people, as there are in every profession. But the lion's share of people have a, a very powerful social drive to connect with other people. They are often grateful to people who have helped them in their past. And I think as people move on in their career, would like to feel that there are other people out there who hold them in the same esteem that they hold some of their advisors and mentors over the years. And so allowing people to engage in that relationship with you is actually, I think, beneficial to everybody. And, and so it's a profound part of what makes us feel as we get older that we have some legacy in the work that we've done. 
and guards against some of the things we were talking about earlier, that Dunning-Kruger effect, <laughs> the illusion that we maybe know more than we actually do. If we're engaging with people around us and developing these relationships, it gives us a lot more data points of where we really are. And I'm curious for the person listening who's thinking, wow, this sounds great, and I've not done much of this, or maybe not done this at all. What do you suggest as a good starting point, a good first step? Yeah, so I think that, that the very first thing to do is just to, to think a little bit about those people and that you know that you admire, that, and, and to think what is it about them that, that makes them successful and makes them effective at what they do. And then just think to yourself, what is one question that I could ask them that I'm sure I could get an answer to? And that's why I say things like, even could you recommend something that you read recently? Because that's a a very easy question for for people to answer often. But just do that. And then, you know, it might take screwing up a little bit of your courage to do it. Not everybody is comfortable just reaching out to someone. But, you know, you can send them an email if, if that's the thing you're most comfortable with. But, you know, I recommend if you can find somebody in a social setting and just take 15 seconds of their time to ask a question, it's a, it's a great way to get to know them. And people are very generous with 15 seconds of their time. So you're not really making an ask that is, is, is likely to, to be rebuffed. And so even if you were a little nervous doing that at first, I think it, you get some positive feedback early on that makes it easier to do that in the future. It's like any human relationship we have, right? Even the relationships we have with partners and spouses, you know, those, all those relationships started with a, a beginning interaction, right? A first step, a first, a first request, and then grew over time as we invested in those relationships. Same thing here, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. And we have to recognize that most of us are in our careers for the long term. And so we're not trying to get every ounce of value out of someone on the first day. In fact, the relationship itself has so much value to it. It's unfortunate that businesses spend primarily time measuring money because it causes us to undervalue our relationships in the workplace and and how important those are for our ultimate level of success. But really, it is that ability to have a variety of people who will help us when we need it, who will give us advice when we need it, who will support us when we need it. That is such a crucial part of being effective, particularly as you advance in your career. And it's worth, even if you don't have a a social balance sheet, it's probably worth paying attention to how much of that kind of social capital you've accrued. You said the word variety a moment ago, and I'm thinking about having read the book and all the references you have to jazz in the book. And you're a saxophonist, and I know you play in a ska band, and talk to people about jazz and leadership. And I'm curious, as you've thought about jazz and music and leadership, what has being a musician taught you about how to lead and influence well? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny. I, so in my, in my mid-30s, I decided to take up the saxophone. And at the time, I just thought I was doing this to learn a new skill. It would be fun, might get me out of the house every once in a while. My hope was that in 10 years of playing, I wouldn't suck, which is about the amount of time it took me before I, I was any good. But what I didn't recognize is the number of ways in which playing music, and particularly playing music with other people or, 
or, or around other people influences the way that you think about your work and leadership and, and success. So for example, this idea that I talked about earlier in the podcast about the importance of humility in listening is, is actually something that comes out of one of the lessons that they teach jazz musicians early on, which is what I sometimes affectionately call the first law of jazz, which is that whenever you sit in with a new group of musicians, you should listen more than you play. Because there's a tendency to want to come in and immediately establish yourself as a decent player and to, you know, throw out a whole bunch of great lines on your instrument. But when you do that, there's a high probability that you're not going to fit in with whatever style everyone's playing. And it's far more important to listen to what the other musicians are doing and to fit yourself in with the vibe that they've created. So that notion of really becoming a good listener, even when people have expectations of you, is one thing. But another one that's really important from the standpoint of learning is that a lot of times we can get hung up on our mistakes. And I, I remember early on in taking saxophone lessons, I was trying to learn to improvise and I, I would just blow a really terrible note and I would stop. And my saxophone teacher would, who's a wonderful guy, he would put his hand up to his ear and he'd look up into the sky and he'd say, it's gone. So, so, so don't let that influence your ability to move forward. You know, learn from it, but don't let it stop you. And I think that, that a lot of us are so afraid of making mistakes, particularly when, when eyes are on us, that we're unable to move forward. You know, I played a show last night, and you know, I will admit, I blew a couple of notes that weren't particularly good ones. Uh, but I don't think anyone listening to the show would know that because I didn't let anybody know I thought that they were bad notes. I just kept moving on. And you know, today, I can think a little bit about what I did and what I might do differently in the future. But I wasn't afraid to keep going just because I had made a mistake. And those are the kinds of things that I think doing something like playing jazz permits in thinking about the rest of your life, and the rest of your career. Art Markman is the author of Bring Your Brain to Work, Using Cognitive Science to Get a Job, Do It Well, and Advance Your Career. Art, thank you so much for your wisdom. Oh, thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure talking with you. There's also a ton in Art's book about landing a job using some of the principles from cognitive science. If you find yourself in the position of career transition or maybe are uh, mentoring someone else who's going through that right now, it's a wonderful resource for that as well. Thank you again, Art, for your wisdom and several related episodes to today's conversation. One of them is episode 105. How to Find a Mentor. That's an episode from a while back. I talked in detail on that episode of how do you uh, avoid the awkward conversation of could you be my mentor and rather really approach that from a more professional and a more holistic way. And in that episode, I walked through some of the things I've seen really work for others and have worked for me over the years. What I probably missed in that episode, though, is the call from Ard and the research behind having a group of people that are mentoring you. And I love his 
uh, detail on looking for a coach and looking for a superstar and looking for a connector. I think that that is absolutely changed in my thinking over the years, and especially since that episode aired. It's a great place for us to start. But uh, a starting point is, of course, with the first person. So episode 105 will be a good support for you on that. I'd also recommend, in the spirit of growing your professional network, the episode with Tom Henschel on how to grow your professional network, episode 279. Uh, So many people reached out to us after that episode and mentioned how helpful Tom's advice was and also a number of the analogies he utilized in order to help us look at the growth of our professional relationships as really long-term investments in building human connections with people. And if the traditional kinds of things you've thought of as far as going to networking events has always rubbed you the wrong way, I think you'll find that episode 279 is a really practical and hopeful way to approach your professional network. And then finally, I also would recommend episode 398, What You Gain by Sponsoring People with Julia Taylor Kennedy. She walked us through some of the research on the distinctions between mentorship and a new term that has emerged, or at least a newer term called sponsorship of how to take a step beyond just providing advice and now actually really advocate for others within your organization. It's uh, hard probably to go out and ask and seek for a sponsor at the beginning, but those of us who are further along in our careers and have influence in our organizations absolutely have the opportunity, and I would even argue the responsibility, to be looking for people to sponsor, especially those who might not be represented as well in the organization for whatever reason. That is a really important conversation, and if you haven't thought about the distinction between mentorship and sponsorship, I absolutely would recommend episode 398 with Julia Taylor Kennedy. All of those will be listed in this week's weekly leadership guide as always, and you can access any of those episodes by searching on the coachingforleaders.com website and activating your free membership. If you haven't already, your free membership is your ticket into the entire archive since 2011, searchable by topic. It's also what will get you access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, including the show notes, all the links, and a number of other resources I found online for you, plus access to the member cast, my book notes, including the notes and uh, highlights I've jotted down from Art's book. All of those are available inside the free membership. To get access to it, just go over to coachingforleaders.com. It'll take you about 20 seconds to set it up, and you'll be off and running from here on out with the entire resource library there. Have a fabulous week, and I'll see you next Monday for our next conversation on leadership. Take care, everyone.